Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. this hour with a conversation about construction versus deconstruction. So just hold those two words in your mind for just a moment. Construction and deconstruction. Are you building up or are you tearing down? 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another, build one another up. It doesn't go on to say, don't tear each other down, but that could be uh, that that could be the way that you understand that. What does it look like if we were to follow the counsel of God uh, through the voice of Paul in Ephesians four twenty four twenty nine? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So that would be talk that tears people down, deconstructive talk. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for what? For building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So when you think about what you're going to say today and you think about the way you're going to address the issues and the topics of the day, are you going to be a person who builds up or a person who tears down? Are you going to use your words and your language and your arguments, what comes out of your mouth for the good of building up, giving grace to those who hear you, or are you going to approach the conversations of the day simply in ways that tear other people down, tear their arguments down. And I'm not saying that we don't enter into the conversations of the day um, with sober judgment. I mean, obviously we do. We are, um, we are critical of ideas when that is what is called for. But we're critical of ideas. We're not critical of people. Let's be mindful of that. How do I effectively talk about a subject matter in a way that strips back falsehood and reveals truth, okay, which is very, very painful, right? That's very, very painful. Um, Being cut to the heart by the Word of God is painful. I mean, having your sin revealed is painful. But how do I do it in such a way that is actually grace being poured out? Because it's grace to know the truth. It's grace to be set free. So that would be my uh, encouragement in terms of thinking today about what we're thinking about and thinking about how we're thinking about the things of the day. Let us be people who adopt the very mind of Christ on the matters of the day in order that we can approach the conversations of the day, not only with truth, but with grace. Next up, Professor Peter Kapsner joins me. Oh, we have a range of headlines to talk about. Um, Let's see. Let's ask this question. Who gets the embryos? Who gets the embryos? That's actually the latest front in divorce case battles in America. That's up next here with Mornings with Carmen.
All right, joining me again today is Dr. Peter Kapsner. Welcome back, Caps. Thank you, man. Those bagpipes made me so happy. When Paul switched my song, I didn't, it just makes me happy this morning, Paul. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> <sighs> okay, so um, can we start with who gets the embryos? Yeah, that's quite an article, isn't it? That was out of the Washington Post in terms of what's going on. You want to set it up or do you want me to just dive into it? I totally, I, I, I want to set it up. Do it, okay. yeah. So um, we have uh, we have laws in America um, that, I don't know, surround marriage, but they also surround divorce. And so when a marriage comes to an end, which is a whole other conversation we could be having, the most contentious contentious issue now, at one point it was who gets, you know, who gets the kids. Like, that's a huge conversation. Then it was like, who gets the dog? And now it's who gets the embryos. Mm. So we got Ruby and John going through a very contentious divorce, and at the center of the uh, of the conversation is the fate of their frozen embryos. Uh, let's see, Ruby wants to use the embryos to have a baby, and in, in the divorce proceedings, she told the judge the embryos probably represented her only chance to have biological children. She's 37 years old. Um, John, uh, jo- John, I think his name is John, John protested that he had no interest in having a child with Torres. Yeah. There you go. It's an incredible story, isn't it? And and it speaks to, I think, one of the troubling, rippling effects that comes from the process of in vitro fertilization. And so before diving into that a little bit more, I think it's helpful to note that I'm sure many of our listeners, I'm sure you do, Carmen, I know I do, I know people who are unable to have children. And and I don't know how to categorize a top 10 painful realities of this world list, but this one seems to fall really high in that list. People understandably are in a tremendous amount of pain when they learn that uh, one of the two of them perhaps is unable to have children. And in fact, even in our own marriage, we ended up having children. But for a while, we walked through some physical things in my own life that we wondered if we could. And, and, and so just even skimming the surface of that conversation was terribly painful. Uh, And so a lot of people turn to the technology of in vitro fertilization, which is creating life outside of the womb, these embryos outside of the womb. It's a very expensive process. And because it's so expensive, most people decide to create somewhere in the neighborhood of four to maybe up to 10 embryos of which then they implant uh, a number of them in the mother's womb. And that's why oftentimes you see multiple birth babies in situations in in vitro fertilization is maybe they've implanted three or four to make sure that one or two come to full term just simply because it's so expensive. But then what do you do with the remaining ones that didn't get implanted? Well, there is now a growing population in, I think it's in Atlanta, but there might be some other places across the country as well, where they store these embryos and they're so tiny, they can store thousands, if not tens of thousands of them on like a little cube, the size of of maybe a playing dice. And these embryos are now in suspended animation. They're frozen. They're considered viable for life for up to about 20 years. And as in vitro fertilization has exploded, you now have just maybe even millions, I think is the last number of these frozen embryos. And now we're into a pretty thorny ethical situation on any number of levels. And what you're talking about then in this story is that this couple, 
decided to have in vitro fertilization while married, thinking they're going to have children. And in the meantime, they decided they were going to get divorced. And the question becomes, so who gets to decide what to do with these embryos that have not yet been implanted? And yet they still sort of, this is terrible language, but they sort of own them, I suppose. And and how do you bring them to life? And I think there's so many things that are tricky about this, not the least of which, Carmen, is the idea that the parents get to decide through their intentions whether or not these little beings are actual life. So uh, one parent is saying, well, I don't want to bring these beings to life. The other one says, I do. But it's within the intentionality of the parents to decide in their own mind what's going on. And wherever else we fall in the abortion conversation, we spend weeks on this in in one of my ethics classes. I, I think one thing we underestimate is that life is in the intentionality of God. It isn't in the intentionality of us. It is what God's intention is for life. And I don't hear a lot of language in this conversation about the idea, what what would God have us do? Should we even have stepped into this technology to begin with, number one? And number two, now that we've done, uh, what would God have to do with these little beings that are in these the, these places of frozen, suspended animation? And, oh, I mean, we could just keep going from there. But it, it really is sort of this Genesis 3, this, this fallen take of things where people say, hey, we're going to be like God. We're going to decide for ourselves on behalf of the future. We're going to cut God out of the equation. And this is where we end up over and over and over again when we decide to sort of brush against the idea that we can be the creator instead of the created. And, and it just leads to all of these kinds of things. There's also um, the development of, of laws in terms of, you know, laws that have to, the way we have laws in our country that have to catch up with the ethical um, challenges that are uh, created out of technology. Right. And, um, and so I think there's probably a lot of people listening right now who are going to be surprised to learn that in most states across the country, the overwhelming, the overwhelming number of states across the country have rulings on the books where when this question has arisen, judges have ruled in favor of the person who does not want the embryos uh, used. And in, in most cases, the embryos are ordered destroyed yep. following the theory that no one should be, quote, forced to become a parent. Um, Arizona, the reason that we're talking about this particular case is Arizona is taking the opposite approach. Uh, it is a first in the nation law. It went into effect in, in July that custody of disputed embryos must be given to the party who intends to help them, quote, develop to birth. This this might be, I mean, in terms of the intersection of medical ethics and um, marital law in the United States of America, I mean, in terms of like pro-life legislation, this one is huge because we're really talking is. about millions of embryos um, across the country. And as divorces, uh, you know, as as divorces take place among those couples who whose biological and genetic material was used to produce those embryos, Right. Yep. The question of who owns them, and that gets to the commodification conversation. Like, there's so many layers to this ethical conversation. There really are. Like, what is marriage? Who, I mean, you know, if, I don't know why this couple didn't have children when they were younger. Like, that is not, that's not shared with us here. But one of the reasons that, you know, Ms. Torres thinks that it, this might be, you know, her last great hope for having a baby is because she's now 37. Like, there's a... 
there is a clicking, uh, a a ticking talk. T- <laughs> talk ticking. Yeah. Uh, we should ticking. take a break. Yes. <laughs> Let's take a very brief break. And when we come back, I will find my words. And Peter Capster and I will continue this conversation. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, continuing my conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner, we are deep in the thick of it. Who gets the embryos is the article in the Washington Post. The issues are issues of authority and autonomy, life and its definition. When does it begin? Uh, again, I, I say unto you, I am a person who believes that life begins at conception and continues to natural death. That means there's conversations um, uh, at the uh, at the other end of life that uh, that. You know, I'm at a different place than some people who believe that, you know, all by all means, for as much time as possible, you keep the living bot, you keep the body alive. Um, I just this is thorny stuff. And so I'm glad to have thorny conversations with my friend Peter Kapsner, who doesn't mind that I from time to time get totally tongue tied. <laughs> the, the clock ticking one was beautiful. I couldn't. No, that was not an it. easy one, gonna, though. To... I'm not I'm not going to try to say it again. <laughs> That's great. I'm not going to try to say it again. Um, OK, so anything um, left in this story that we want to um, we want to cover? I mean, maybe just that this is a conversation that pastors must be prepared to have. Parents need to be prepared to have when you're when you're when your children want to have kids and are having a hard time doing that. Um, supporting them in their efforts at IVF is maybe not the most faithful Christian thing to do. This is a hard conversation. It is a very hard conversation, Carmen. And and when we approach some different ethical questions in my class, we try to look at what would be a helpful method for considering the the many different layers of that conversation. And so one of the areas we'll investigate will be the scriptures, and another area will be the traditions and writings and thinkings of the church over the last 2,000 years. We'll look at some sciences and, and psychology, biology, those sorts of things. But the last quadrant that we'll look at is the quadrant of of the human experience as we live out something, how does that play itself out in our life? And and the reason why I bring that up, and I think you said pastors maybe need to be helpful in some of these places of technology with people, is that I actually had a pastor in one of my uh, classes in Christian ministries who really cracked open one night, and he talked about his and his wife's process of in vitro fertilization. They did have twins, and they're these two boys that they absolutely love and adore, as they should. But he has been, and his wife have been, sort of racked, not with guilt perhaps, but just significant uncertainty about what to do with all of the remaining embryos. They, it is, it's been really difficult for them to try to figure out, do we... Uh, donate them to another couple so that then they don't have to go through the process? Do we let them just sit? Do we bring them all to life? We can't afford having seven, eight, or nine kids, and they don't really know what to do. And when you read stories of people who have walked through in in vitro fertilization, this is a very common part of the experience is they don't know what to do with the maybe four to seven embryos that have been created that are now sitting there in, in this that you've identified, millions of them, in, in these places of storage. And boy, that's really troubling, Carmen. And and I think this is one of those classic examples from Jurassic Park, right? Where just because we can doesn't mean we should. And I, I think as soon as we decide to start playing God on some kind of level, we're always going to end up with 
these questions that are unresolvable. We can't create the fullness of shalom on our own. And so we have to minister to people who can't have children in a much more effective way than I think that we do. But at the same time, sometimes the way we try to minister is actually then bringing new things into the equation that make it that much more difficult and don't create the peace and the healing that we're desiring. All right. If you're not familiar with embryo adoption, it's a it is a big movement. There's a rising tide of embryo adoption across the country. The adoption of embryos um, is happening every single day and babies are being born, um, some of whom have been uh, uh, frozen for more than two decades. So this is um, this is where. You know, technology and medical ethics and the Christian conversation and the value of every human life and um, the value of raising a child in a Christian family and all kinds of things, um, you know, just end up as fodder for really, really, really good conversations. So um, Nightlight is one of those uh, uh, one of those ministries that, that is out there. There's, just all, there's a lot of them. So you can just Google embryo adoption or national embryo adoption and get all kinds of great information on this topic. All right, Peter, let's um, let's cover one other topic really quickly, because I know you've already discussed it with your students in your class. For the sixth year in a row, uh, the U.S. reports a record number of sexually transmitted diseases. That's phenomenal. It really is quite the statistic. And I think one way to think about these things when, when we see this kind of phenomenon is to at least ask ourselves the question, um, should we go back and evaluate the premise off of which we are working that is giving rise to this kind of reality. And here's what I mean by that is we spend an entire class period kind of walking decade by decade by decade through the changing norms within sexuality. We start in the 1960s. We obviously could go much further back than that, but we start in the 60s and and look at the challenge to authority. We look at the rise of um, make love, not war. We look at the different changing morals around sexuality in which it really was taken out of marriage. And of course, people had had sex outside of marriage prior to that. But this is when the shift happened that it began to be celebrated in some ways, as opposed to sort of underneath the surface that people would kind of turn away from knowing it happened. There's a big difference when we begin to celebrate. And in that celebration, there's this rippling impact then that we see the divorce rate in the 1970s go from 6% to north of 55%. And and we, we talk about our very premise of the fact that we should have freedom in our sexuality, i.e. 1960s, has led then to this incredible divorce culture of the 1970s that then rippled out into the premarital sexuality culture of the 80s movies like Breakfast Club and Prince Music and, and all of what we see there into the 90s. Then we talk about, well, of course, our young people are going to be sexually active. It just needs to be safe. And there's all kinds of conversations. Should we distribute birth control in school? And that led to the rise of pornography, which led to all of this gender stuff. Basically, the point being, Carmen, is that when we see these stats about sexually transmitted diseases on the rise, what I think is troubling to me is nobody is going back to question the very premise that gave rise to uh, sexually transmitted diseases. It is about, so how do we manage it now? How do we educate now? How do we do this? How do we do that? As opposed to going back and say, hang on a minute, maybe our premise from the 1960s where freedom was equated to lack of boundaries in our sexuality, maybe we should go back to that 
and wonder about how we ended up where we are now some 60 years later from that time. And I think that's the invitation of the church right now is not to constantly trying to be putting Band-Aids on these things or trying to figure out these things in, in independent of what happened over the last 60 or 70 years because there's a lot that has taken shape that are sort of just assumptions now, but I think we need to go back and question our assumptions and reestablish what is freedom and sexuality actually because it requires boundaries in order for it to be truly free. And we don't think that way anymore. Actually, that's a good question to ask in relationship to the first conversation that we had as well. What are the assumptions that, you know, that are just sort of taken for granted right. as a part of this larger conversation? Um, I mean, you know, no fault divorce would be a part of that. I mean, the, the div- so I, I think there are lots of, you know, that that parenting is a choice, that a child is a choice. Like, I, I mean, go down the list. Um, and, you know, and that I control, uh, well, and that a person could be bought or sold or could be owned. I mean, the fact that you could own an embryo, that this is treated like a, yeah, a, a piece of commercial merchandise, like that's something's going on there. So what are the assumptions that we're making in our culture? What are the assumptions we're making in our jur- jurisprudence? And yeah, what are the assumptions that we're making behind the conversation, you know, that we are now in the sixth year in a row in the United States with a record number of STDs. I mean, that number is going higher and higher and higher every year. Well, there's something behind that, and there's some assumptions behind that, and those assumptions need to be challenged. For sure. Well said. Yeah. Well, you said it first. So, (laughs) Uh, All right. That's Dr. Peter Kapsner. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Good luck across the street with your students today. Yeah, thanks so much, Carmen. Great to be with you guys. Mm -hmm. Likewise. We'll be right back. Are monsters real? Are monsters real? Uh, Yeah, you betcha. We're going to talk with Karen Swallow Pryor about reading the classics from a gospel perspective, teeing up uh, Frankenstein. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Licato. Why did Jesus live on the earth as long as he did? To take on our sins is one thing. To experience death, yes, but to put up with the long roads, the long days, why did he do it? Because he wants you to trust him. Even his final act on earth was intended to win your trust. Mark 15:22 says, They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, where they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Why? Why did he endure all this suffering, all these feelings? Well, because he knew you'd be weary, disturbed, and angry. He knew you'd be grief-stricken and hungry, that you'd face pain. A pauper knows better than to beg from another pauper. He needs someone who's stronger than he is. Jesus' message from the cross is this. I am that person. Trust me. This is Max Lucado. Joining me now, Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, one of my uh, favorite people to follow on Twitter. So I'll share with you her handle. You can follow her on Twitter at KS Pryor. She is research professor of English and Christianity and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Karen, welcome back. Hi, Karen. It's great to be with you. Oh, it's so great to have you here. So um, these books are beautiful. We have talked about um, the first two when they were released, and now we are talking about 
um, the next two. So the first two we talked about were Sense and Sensibility and Heart of Darkness. And today we're going to talk about Jane Eyre and Frankenstein. Tell people what this um, what this guide to reading and reflecting, you know, what to expect when they encounter these books. Well, these are books, uh, as you said, they are beautifully designed. They are hard cloth, uh, cloth bound books that you can keep for a lifetime and pass down to uh, future generations. And they are also books that uh, that are. I'm finding are being loved by those who've never read the stories before and those who've read them often um, because I've written introductions that um, are at an introductory level for people who've not read them with no spoilers and provide a lot of background information. But even the, I'm finding that many who've read the stories before, you know, maybe haven't studied them in a college classroom or certainly haven't studied them with me. And so in some ways, uh, the whole package is, is like a mini classroom with me, with the introductions I write and the footnotes and the um, reflection questions. Um, they're perfect for a book club as well. Yeah, they're they are beautiful physically and they are um it is like sitting with Karen and talking through something. Um and if you're like me and maybe you went to public school, you didn't have the value of going to a classical Christian school when you were a kid and maybe like me you went to a public university um where if you took English lit, you didn't uh you were not encouraged to be reading the text in the light of the gospel and maybe you didn't read the classics anyway anywhere along the way. Um, Karen sits with us as a guide, um, as contemporary Christians reading the classics. So make the argument, Karen, that contemporary Christians should read the classics if we've never read them or for those who have read them before. Yeah, your your experience uh, as you're talking about going to school was just like mine, Carmen, because I also went to public school and uh, state university and um, and really had to learn myself later in life when I began teaching at a Christian university how to think about works of literature um, through a gospel lens. And that's really why, you know, why my publisher wanted uh, B&H had this idea to, to produce these books, uh, because, they're, of course, we can enjoy them the same way that anyone else can. Uh, but the things that make great works of literature great are actually the fact that they reflect universal, enduring human questions about the human condition and human meaning and purpose. And so even if they aren't written by a Christian, they still wrestle with those questions. And so I've included in, in the introductions and the questions angles that help us to, to view these questions through um, through the Bible, through whether it's scripture passages or just biblical principles um, or Christian worldview questions that we can bring to the text. Uh, there are lots of ways of, of enjoying these these works of literature. And I think as a Christian, it's even richer and deeper. Yeah, reading every text in the light of the gospel is a part of um, is a part of the approach here. And yes, I do have a set of these beautiful books to give away. So if you would like to enter the drawing for um, the set of two that I have today, so the set is Frankenstein, A Guide to Reading and Reflecting, and Jane Eyre, A Guide to Reading and Reflecting. Karen Swallow Pryor is the author. Our friends at B&H sent us a set to give away today. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. Karen, when when we think about Frankenstein, I think I want to tee up this question. Are monsters real? (laughs) 
That's a great question. And that, that, you know, that is, um, I think this is one of the things that Christians sometimes struggle with in reading works of literature, especially ones that deal with dark themes, because we don't know that there is a monster at the heart of, of Frankenstein. Um, but even though in the story it's a literal monster, there is so much symbolism and meaning um, that we can draw from it, that we can apply to our own lives that are that are so, so different from the the story of Frankenstein, at least I hope so, um, that that's, that's the power of the story is kind of making literal the ideas that we deal with every day and it, our responsibility, our, the consequences for our actions, the things that we unfold unintentionally just because we, you know, we did one thing and there was a domino effect or butterfly effect that led to something else far beyond what we intended. That's what's happening in the story of Frankenstein, uh, along with a lot of other things. And so in that sense, um, we create monsters every time we sin and it has ripple effects that hurt and harm other people. Um, and Frankenstein is a story that we can read through that lens. So Karen, it occurs to me um, that in each of these releases so far, the first with Heart of Darkness and Sense and Sensibility, and then this time Frankenstein and Jane Eyre, um, I feel like there's a book to hold in each hand. There's sort of a book that's, you know, got like a dark, scary, yeah, I'm not sure I want to go there, and you take me there, and I'm not afraid because I have you as a good guide. And then there's, you know, something that is... um Seems good and light, but then I discover is much deeper, deeper and richer mm-hmm. than uh, maybe I ever expected. Talk, talk with us about sort of the the release process, because two at a time, you know, maybe feels like a lot to consume, but it also sort of sets me up for summer long reading. Yeah, this is such a good question. Thank you, Carmen, because, yes, the series will consist of six books when it's done and I'm releasing two at a time. And of course, I'm choosing works that that I know and that I love and that will make a nice complete set, hopefully. Um, But also I am picking pairs that I think do balance and complement complement one another, as as you suggest. The first one was Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen and Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. And you couldn't really get more opposite than those two. (laughs) Yet what you just said is is with good works of literature, it's it's not the surface that matters. It's what's underneath. So on the surface, Frankenstein is a very odd and disorienting story. And on the surface, Jane Eyre is a sweet kind of love story. Um, but underneath both of them are themes that in some ways are actually very familiar uh, or very similar to one another, um, especially in Jane Eyre, because without giving anything away, there's something very scary at the heart of that story as well. Um, but both novels leave us asking questions about what our, what our purpose is and what our creator created us for um, and what we, you know, what path we should take and what pitfalls we should avoid in fulfilling that purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I it just, it's just excellent. It's well done. I, I see the genius of releasing them two at a time and I, I mean, I've told you before, having you as my guide in reading them makes the whole thing um, far less intimidating. Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior and I are going to continue our conversation after a brief break. If you're interested in entering the drawing for the copies of the books I have to give away, the set this time includes Frankenstein, A Guide to Reading and Reflecting, and Jane Eyre, A Guide to Reading and Reflecting, both by 
Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Just text the word book to 877-933-2484. Now I'm All right, continuing my conversation with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Um, we are talking about reading the classics from a gospel perspective. Karen, I have a listener question. Uh, Jim from Connecticut has texted in, what's the difference between literature and just books? And then I will add to that, what makes a classic a classic? Oh, I love these questions. Thank you so much. Um yeah, I, I mean, literature can be used in a very broad sense, as it was in ancient times, to just mean something that was written down, something that uses letters. Um, but of course, today, when we talk about literature, as opposed to just yeah, any printed material or books, what we mean is writing that uses words and language artistically. So it would be the difference between paint, putting paint on a wall and making a painting, um, creating, creating something with that same paint. And so, of course, we read a lot of words every day that are, are words and they give us information and someone wrote them, uh, but they aren't necessarily, nor should they be used creatively or artistically to kind of recreate experience. So literature and that includes not only novels like I've produced, but also poetry and drama and even uh, some nonfiction can be written in a literary style that uses words artistically and artfully and creatively um, as a as a form of art. Um, that's what literature is. And of course, you know, we can point at one work and some might say, oh, that's that's very artistic. And someone would say no. And so it can be debatable. But really, I think that the painting metaphor is helpful. We know that paint put on the wall isn't art. But even when a three year old child tries to make a picture with paint, that is art that's being creative. Um, and then, of course, the kinds of works that end up being classics are those that past the test of time. Um, and actually they can kind of go in and out of popularity as well. We see that debate going on now about older works of literature. Do we, you know, do we still consider them to be universal and enduring or do we see them with different eyes now? Those questions are always being asked, but there certainly are books that, um, I think are, have, have earned a place that they will always be considered classics, even though they aren't perfect, uh, even though they don't represent all human experience. Um, and I've, those are the ones that I, from which I've chosen uh, to include in these series. Is the Bible a classic? Is, it, is the Bible a piece of classic literature? Well, the Bible certainly is literature. Uh, I mean, it's more than that. But this this is one of the things that's so powerful for Christians to think about. If the Bible were just simply a text of information, um, you know, kind of giving us instructions and like a how-to manual or a newspaper report, um, which it does have some of that, but if that's all that it was supposed to be, it would have been written that way. But instead, God in his providence chose to deliver his written word to us in many different genres, many different styles, in poetry, in prose, in drama. Uh, the book of Job is really an extended drama between uh, a conversation um, among friends set in a narrative. Uh, letters, 
all of these different forms of literature are in the Bible. And of course, they are all true. They're all inspired by God. Um, so that makes them more than literature. But the Bible is the greatest literary work ever written. Yeah, I asked that question because I, I just recognize there's just a lot of folks in the world who might find themselves not interested in reading the Bible. And I know that there are then people who teach it as literature, as an approach to, you know, introducing it into the conversation. Um, So I just thought, you know, since I got you here, I'd ask. And in the spirit of I have you here and I'll ask, um, (laughs) we're both women and we're both Southern Baptist. And my guess is you're getting a lot of uh, the same questions that I'm getting, which is, you know, as a woman, um, in the Southern Baptist Church, you know, sort of where are you in this very public conversation that is taking place about the role of women, um, particularly when teaching? I mean, you teach at a Southern mm-hmm. Baptist seminary, so you seem like a good person to ask. Yeah, when you ask where am I, I feel like I'm kind of right in the middle of it. <laughs> um, and especially at, at this you know, this time in my life where I have transitioned um, to teaching in a seminary context where there aren't very many female um, seminary professors. Uh, thankfully, there are um, a growing number of, of female seminary students, and and this is uh, this is really good because we are seeing some walls fall down that probably never should have been up in the first place in terms of providing and encouraging women's theological education, um, providing and supporting women in ministry roles um, in a variety of, of places and ways, not only here in America, but around the world. Um, so this is kind of, I, this is a place and time in the church, I think, where we're asking some hard questions. And I think women are asking questions of the church that they should be asking. And I, and I want to be there to hopefully um, offer some some better answers. Yeah, I think that there are um, better questions being asked as well. And so I appreciate that you um, sort of remain in the context and in the conversation um, because better questions need good answers. And so, uh, you know, just thank you for staying in there. I, I, I like the approach to the conversation. I heard you um, I heard you answer this about, you know, having an impoverished imagination, that part of this mm. is we need to, you know, we need to have better imaginations. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I love how this question kind of brings together these two topics in the conversation this morning, because in some ways, the, the questions and issues and problems we're facing in the church, um, you know, in, in the questions around women in particular, but I think a lot of other questions that we're facing are because we do have these limited imaginations. Like we think that there's only answer A or B to this question. And so everyone piles up on either team A or team B when in fact, maybe it's, those are not the right, the best answers because it's not even the right question. And so if we can think, you know, and learn, and we do this a lot through reading to see how, uh, how these questions were addressed in different times and places or weren't even questions at all. Uh, For example, if we think about the issues of race that we're facing right now uh, in the church as well, uh, those are such 20th and 21st century American questions. Um, the church exists around the world um, among populations that are all different colors. And so they aren't even asking the same questions that we're asking. So it's a way, it's time for us as a church to look to our brothers and sisters around the globe and understand the questions that they, they're asking because um, 
because we, we, we get caught up in our own immediate moment and that's what limits our imagination. So through reading and through actually looking to brothers and sisters across the world and throughout history, we can expand our imaginations in so many ways so that we can see our own problems very differently. Yeah, and before when you as you're listening, before you freak out and everybody starts texting me, um, Karen is saying all of that in the context of an imagination that is uh, that's bound by scripture and totally captive to Christ and, um, you know, and Holy Spirit guided, directed and and everything else. So uh, let's, you know, let's be clear about how we (laughs) view scripture and how we view one another. um, And as we're having these conversations Let's be people who show grace to one another and have the capacity to have real conversations um, that start with real listening. So, Karen, as always, thank you so much. The books are beautiful. Um, Your guide to helping us read them is tremendous. And thank you, uh, as always, for the conversation. Thank you so much, Carmen. Absolutely. That's Karen Swallow Pryor. You can follow her on Twitter at KS Pryor. We'll be right back. Hey, a great resource if you want to follow up on the conversation about education in America today. The website is the74million.org, the74million.org. I'm checking it out right now and what they're talking about. What are you reading? Uh, Who are you reading and where in the word are you today? What assumptions are you making as you read and think and talk? Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.